re-engineering humanity. Is technology making us behave like simple machines? I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Brett Frischman, author and Charles Widger Endowed University Professor in Law, Business, and Economics at Villanova University. Welcome, Brett. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Give us a brief summary of your professional background that includes degrees in astrophysics and earth resources engineering and law. Well, you just said it. My, uh, <laughs> so, an undergraduate, I was in astrophysics and math, uh, and then I went on to grad school in engineering, um, both at Columbia University, and then I went to Georgetown for law school. Um, and after, uh, after that, I, um, I worked for a law firm, Wilmer Cutler Pickering in DC, doing uh, intellectual property and telecommunications and internet law. Uh, then clerked for uh, Fred Parker on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, and then I joined the faculty at Loyola University of Chicago. I uh, was there for about eight years. Um, and then I transferred, I lateraled over to Cardozo Law School in New York, uh, directed their IP program for a number of years. Uh, and then more recently, and then the last couple of years, I've been at Villanova University for this uh, endowed professorship, which is, is quite neat because it's, inter it's interdisciplinary by design. So it's sort of a, it's an opportunity to do uh, law, economics, business, but also a lot of technology. I want to talk about your book that you co-authored, in fact, Reengineering Humanity, and how, how you address, or I, I guess the question would be to you, how do you address your own question? Is technology making us behave like simple machines? Um, well, so that's good. That's uh, the way I we come about that question is uh, to frame it, right? So, is is technology uh, making us behave like simple machines? And the answer to that is yes, um, in certain respects, in certain parts of our lives, uh, not uh, in the totality of our lives, not all of the time, uh, not completely. Um, and so, the the difficulty is sort of identifying when it's happening, how it's happening, why it's happening. Um, and then to be able to identify uh, when that's um, uh, for our own good, uh, maybe detrimental to us, when it's having an impact on who we are or certain, you know, who we can be or things that we're capable of doing. Um, and so the question is sort of a starting point. So when we have a, there's a bunch of examples. The book is like littered with examples to sort of help the reader see and evaluate how seemingly disparate, separate uh, things that in technologies, interactions that they have with technology um, are actually sort of perhaps puzzle pieces, like parts of a larger whole that when you start to see how they connect and how they relate to each other and how they're affecting our behavior, um, you know, are revealing. Uh, so that's part of it. So if you think about like we can talk about lots of specific examples. I'm sure you have questions about like contracting or, you know, clicking uh, like buttons on on social media, and I can we can talk through. Um, but if in fact different technologies and different contexts of our lives are engineering or, or nudging us to behave like simple machines, um, we want the the other part thing that the book does and that we try to do. Uh, both in the book and then I'm starting to do some research and stuff outside of the book, um, is to develop a framework for evaluating the human technology interactions and, and what, it, what it means. And we, to do that, we develop a, a, a series of what we call reverse Turing tests. 
um, that sort of when, that identify when you are behaving in a machine-like manner with respect to some kind of human capacity or capability uh, that's important, right? So, and I, we can talk about that too. So, so there's a, a framework for thinking about and identifying and evaluating these contexts and how it affects us and the manner in which we're machine-like, um, and then a whole series of examples that hopefully the reader can connect to. You've referred to the book has, as you pointed out, many examples. Let, let's pick one. In fact, you cited a situation between United Airlines and a passenger to, to illustrate, in fact, that common sense can be suspended or even ex extinguished. Um, tell us the story behind that and the implications. Well, it's when we're outsourcing sort of problem solving, right? We're pro outsourcing logistics to a computer system where the, the kind of problem you're solving, uh, it's not a good fit for that kind of system, right? So um, I'm trying to remember the, what would, do you remember what the exact cause for why the person needed to be? Yeah, it was the crew. So, so a gentleman uh, boarded the plane, he, he was on the plane, and the crew, uh, after he was already boarded and everything, he was a paid customer, removed him from the plane because they had these, um, these uh, airline employees that needed to be transferred. So they, booked, they booted a paying customer to put their employees on. And when they cited the reason they did this, it was because it was what the computer told them to do, which really didn't make any sense. Right, and, right. so it's an example of where they've outsourced the sort of the management of, of seating to a protocol or a, or a system that sort of just tells, flags a person and prioritizes based on some prior set of rules about who gets to have that seat, right? So I think, I think we, we, it, it is, a, is the solution to the overbooking problem was one that they could have dealt with in a commonsensical way if the people, uh, the, the attendants were able to think for themselves. Right, we're able to say, well, well, is this a passenger? You're a paid passenger. Why are we putting this person into the seat? Well, it's it's just another employee. They can hop on another flight, right? And they can sort of make that on on the ground judgment. Um, but the system that the that United Airlines has in place precludes that. And then the, in the other piece of it is not only the la the precluding the exercise of common sense because you've outsourced it to a uh, logistical system or to the tech technical uh, set of rules. But it, um, uh, but it also is, uh, it reflects how you're setting your priorities, right? So there's some, so, and so there's no responsibility. So part of the, as I recall, the way we use the example in the book is it's part of the reason is it's not only that there's this lack of common sense in dealing with the problem on the ground in that, in that context, it's also the response of, well, we're just following orders. Right, which is a response you should always should always like raise a flag when you sort of like you're deflecting responsibility and blame by saying I'm just following orders, where there's uh, you know the machine told me to do it, right? As opposed to well, why didn't you stop and think for yourself to assess the situation? Where common sense would have led to a very simple and less uh, troublesome uh, outcome, certainly from a customer relations and publicity standpoint. Um, but again, the, the, attempt, the, the people were, the employees are basically treated as, as though they, they can't think for themselves and they're, they're purely programmed essentially to follow the script. 
Are the people that are in the decision-making roles as far as the top leadership, maybe the C-level executives, the people that are responsible for educating those frontline employees, are they empowering employees today? Are, are we following what the computer tells us to do? Are we training our employees to, to just, you know, listen to the computer? Well, I mean, the, the thing is the, so it's, I mean, it, I don't want to overgeneralize uh, across all industries or anything, but to the extent that the, that executives, it's, it's kind of the logic of efficiency, right? And productivity um, assessed and evaluated through uh, the uh, computerized systems sort of a data-driven management of labor in a workforce, right? So if you have a data-driven management system um, that is, making, I mean, so that in the customer relations context, it's not really about a productivity call, right? The decision about what that, whether or not to give the seat to the customer who has paid versus the employee um, who, who has sort of a priority access to certain kinds of seats when they're, when they're available, right? What to do when there's a conflict, that's not really about a productivity question, right? It's not necessarily even efficiency question unless the efficiency question sort of accounts for customer relations and the broader public, public uh, publicity nightmare that follows. But, but efficiency calculus, like the system for making efficiency decisions and sort of efficiently allocating access to seats, right, isn't, isn't one that right, like fully accounts for, you know, those economists would talk about them in terms of external effects or externalities, right? They're not sort of internalized into the decision-making calculus because they're they're hard to foresee, they're hard to quantify, they're hard to know that like the customer uh, relations and publicity nightmare is gonna sort of blow up in the way that it does. Now, common sense tells you it's going to blow up that way, and so we should avoid this, but the, but the employee is not sort of empowered to use their common sense because they're so routinely sort of following the instructions. So yeah, it's a sort of an efficiency versus, you know, efficiency narrowly conceived, right? efficiency in terms of, you know, maximally using your, 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 you know, using your resources to their most efficient, in the most efficient way, um, based on a limited set of data and according to a sort of a limited calculus of like what the potential outcomes are going to be. You mentioned clicking the like button earlier. How has that affected our behavior and it, how has it changed us? Well, clicking clicking the like button, I think, is an is just one uh, pretty decent example of where we are more or less trained into a um, an unthinking automatic response, rather than a more deliberate and thoughtful response. So, uh, clicking a like is sort of a substitute for writing a thoughtful comment, for explaining why it is that something is, uh, why you like something, for example. Um, clicking like is often, it turns out to be a substitute for actually reading something. So you often, people use click as sort of almost a, a, a pseudo bookmarking, right, or pseudo sharing. So it just, it's a um, uh, quick or fast thinking behavior as opposed to a slow thinking uh, kind of behavior. Uh, that the platform is designed to encourage. It's designed to encourage it because it generates uh, data um, and it keeps you glued to the platform. Um, and it's a sort of a metric for helping to sort content. 
Um, so the the clicking clicking like or clicking all of the a lot of the clicking behaviors where you've got a, a the social media platforms are sort of optimized for certain kinds of clicks, certain styles of communication, right? So you can think of liking, um, uh, sharing, like the, the just hitting a share button, hitting a like button. Um, a lot of that is a, is a style of communication that's rather shallow, right? It's engagement according to the, the platforms because it tells you that you're engaging in a very particular kind of way. You're engaging in a way that generates data and it contributes to the um, kind of conversation that Facebook is optimized for or that Twitter is optimized, I mean, depending on which platform we're talking about. Um, or TikTok, as we were talking about before we went on air. Um, but of course, uh, you know, you have to think about the alternative. Like, what what are there other kinds of or styles of communication um, are you are people uh, foregoing? Um, and so that's it's just one example of the kind of communication that it optimizes for. In the book's concluding chapter, where you suggest how to solve our techno social problems, you identify a call for freedom, encompassing two related ideas. Explain those. Right. So there's there's sort of a freedom to be off. Um, and the, there's sort of two sides of the same coin. It's a freedom to be off and uh, the freedom from engineered, uh, freedom from engineered determinism. Um, and the idea is, is you could think about it in the opposite is like it's the, the freedom to not always be on, right? Not to not always be subject to techno social engineering, social engineering implemented through the through, through technical platforms. Um, so sometimes in your life, you need to be able to think for yourself, to author your own life, to, to have a little friction um, uh, that allows you to sort of stop, deliberate, think, plan, um, make mistakes. Um, and so, uh, the fr the freedom to be off. I, so the way one way to think about it is at the at the level of a sort of small c constitutional question for the 21st century is how because because much of the book at the end is about uh, it's about the world we're building for ourselves and for future generations. Right. The the world that we build shapes what people believe their opportunities in life to author their own lives uh, to exercise their free will, um, which you know which we describe in terms of your your capacity to reflect upon and determine your own beliefs and preferences and tastes and values. And, and determining those things requires some degree to stop and think for yourself, to, to sort of, um, uh, to not just take the scripts that are supplied for you by others. And so largely it's about engineering spaces in our lives. It's whether it's parents uh, engineering spaces for their kids in the home, uh, whether it's schools, interacting with parents and engineering some spaces that are free from techno social engineering on the bus or in the schools um, and, and even in the homes because schools influence what parents are doing when they're and the way they interact with technology uh, or it's workplaces and hospitals um, and then you can kind of work through from a more micro level to mezzo and more macro levels as you're thinking about um, the spaces that are because we're always building our environments. The, the world we live in is one that's, there's the natural environment, but then there's the built environments that we live in and we have it, we develop within as human beings. Um, and within those environments, we need to preserve our freedom to author our own lives. Brett Frischman, Charles Wigger, 
endowed university professor in law, business, and economics at Villanova University and co-author of Reengineering Humanity. If somebody wants to connect with you, Brett, maybe they want a copy of one of your books uh, or any number of your books, uh, how can they do that? Well, the books are all on, on Amazon. Uh, we, have a, we have a book website. Um, I have a book websites for the different books. Um, you can also find me at Villanova. I have a faculty page and you know, it's easy enough to just follow me on Twitter. And I highly recommend either go to your local bookstore or maybe find uh, Brett on Amazon. And you can find more of my interviews right here or at tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.